Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. So today on the podcast, we have, as we are apparently wont to do, uh, some more evidence law for everybody. It turns out we both liked evidence a lot because these cases keep coming up. Uh, I want to thank our Twitter followers because they're actually the inspiration for this one. We are talking about Kelowan today, and this was a suggestion from one of our followers on Twitter as to what evidence case we should do next, and they picked this one. So putting out the content that people want, Zach. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a cool thing. I don't know what we do without our awesome Twitter followers because they're always so good yeah. at providing us feedback and love and support, and that's great. That's that's the community we want to foster. And importantly, Kelowan's a great case to pick because it's hearsay. And you want yeah. to talk about the most confusing rule of evidence? Hearsay. <laughs> and I think I want to give a little a little shout out to Peter Sankoff. At the beginning of COVID times, he did like a little lecture series for students. Oh, yes. He did one yep. on hearsay. And oh, my God, did it ever yep. clarify it. And I've had to go back and review it because... Yeah, this stuff still confuses me. <laughs> I, no, I and it comes up so much. Like you know, I think I'm at the point where I'm writing a memo on hearsay like once a month, like some sort of hearsay in some capacity. What counts as hearsay? Hearsay in this? Like I think I wrote a I wrote a memo about you know hearsay when it, an expert bases their opinion on it the other day. Like you know, it it comes up so much, and this is the case obviously for hearsay. Kelowan mm-hmm. is our current case for hearsay in Ontario, and it was a unanimous decision by the court. So, Kelowan's it. It does a pretty good job of summarizing hearsay, but like hearsay is confusing, so it doesn't do the best job, but it does a good job. Yeah. <laughs> You know what it always reminds me of? So hearsay is a very confusing legal topic. Mentioned it. But what confuses hearsay even more is how often people who may not understand the legal, like, framework of hearsay use it in common, like, parlance. And they're like, that's hearsay. And you're like, like, well, it's not actually hearsay. Yeah. You're also not in a court right now, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) No, I know. And I think that's the problem. It's like, I think, I would say that hearsay is one of those things where, like, what the, it's one of the strongest examples of what the public thinks it means isn't even close to like what the current law says that it is yes it's like it doesn't even kind of match i don't know again law and order did a sturdy as it always does but it was so worth it but it's just you know But yeah, no, I remember studying for evidence and I had, it was me and my friend and we were on the floor of my house with like a giant map trying to like draw Charlie from its all always sunny in Philadelphia string arrows between all of the exceptions to hearsay. And it was just like a nightmare. So Kelowan certainly helps, but I'm not going to pretend it clears it up entirely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, um, I'm going to throw Peter Sankoff's name out once more, because during that little lecture <laughs> series, he mentioned, he's like, I can't remember the case. It might have been Kelowan. I don't remember the exact framework. But he said there was an opportunity for um, the hearsay law to be flipped on its head. So including all the exceptions and turning the exception on its head, right? So everything uh, was presumptively admissible yeah, yeah. until you could prove that it wasn't. So you, you yeah. flip it over. So you don't have to try and fit it into, I think he described them as pigeonholes. Yeah. 
that way you you flip it all over and it's like what a brilliant novel idea yeah well and then it's sort of like you learn all this beautiful hearsay and you draw your mind maps and you understand it and then you go before like an administrative tribunal where they're just like oh we don't care yeah hearsay's <laughs> you're like, not a problem for this body and you're like <laughs> but oh. but i learned so many things though i learned so many things <laughs> there's like no so but we don't time. care though yeah it's like oh, i don't care about that though that's that's irrelevant here we don't have those rules that's not the rules here we do a different thing and you're like but why all my work (laughs) all All my my maps all the things i learned so yeah no it's definitely one of those things that's like you have to learn it it's one of the biggest things you're going to learn in evidence law and otherwise and then it's one of those things that like constantly has to be adapted to the current situation you're in because who knows how it's going to work depending on what is going on and where you're appearing absolutely yeah so enjoy this one guys it's a doozy but it's also a goodie enjoy The Queen and Kelawan, on appeal from the Court of Appeal for Ontario. The judgment of the court was delivered by Justice Charon. Part 1. Overview. This appeal turns on the admissibility of hearsay statements under the principled case-by-case exception to the hearsay rule based on necessity and reliability. In particular, guidance is sought on what factors should be considered in determining whether a hearsay statement is sufficiently reliable or admissible. This court's decision in the Queen and Star has been generally interpreted as standing for the proposition that circumstances extrinsic to the taking of the statement go to ultimate reliability only and cannot be considered by the trial judge in ruling on its admissibility. The decision has generated much judicial commentary and academic criticism on various grounds, including the difficulty of defining what constitutes an extrinsic circumstance and the apparent inconsistency between this holding and star and the court's consideration of a semen stain on the declarant's clothing in the Queen and Khan, the declarant's motive to lie in the Queen and Smith, and the most relevant to this case, the striking similarities between the statements in the Queen and UFJ. As a general principle, all relevant evidence is admissible. The rule excluding hearsay is a well-established exception to this general principle. While no single rationale underlies its historic development, the central reason for the presumptive exclusion of hearsay statements is the general inability to test their reliability. Without the maker of the statement in court, it may be impossible to inquire into that person's perception, memory, narration, or sincerity. The statement itself may not be accurately recorded. Mistakes, exaggerations, or deliberate falsehoods may go undetected and lead to unjust verdicts. Hence, the rule against hearsay is intended to enhance the accuracy of the court's finding of fact, not impede its truth-seeking function. However, the extent to which hearsay evidence will present difficulties in assessing its worth obviously varies with the context. In some circumstances, the evidence presents minimal dangers, and its exclusion, rather than its admission, would impede accurate fact-finding. Hence, over time, a number of exceptions to the rule were created by the courts. Just as traditional exceptions to the exclusionary rule were largely crafted around those circumstances where the dangers of receiving the evidence were sufficiently alleviated, so too must be founded the overarching principled exception to hearsay. When it is necessary to resort to evidence in this form, a hearsay statement may be admitted if, because of the way in which it came about, its contents are trustworthy, or if circumstances permit the ultimate trier of fact 
to sufficiently assess its worth. If the proponent of the evidence cannot meet the twin criteria of necessity and reliability, the general exclusionary rule prevails. The trial judge acts as a gatekeeper in making this preliminary assessment of the threshold reliability of the hearsay statement and leaves the ultimate determination of its worth to the fact finder. The distinction between threshold and ultimate reliability reflects the important difference between admission and reliance. Admissibility is determined by the trial judge based on the governing rules of evidence. Whether the evidence is relied upon to decide the issues in the case is a matter reserved for the ultimate trier of fact to decide in the context of the entirety of the evidence. The failure to respect this distinction would not only result in the undue prolongation of admissibility hearings, it would distort the fact-finding process. In determining the question of threshold reliability, the trial judge must be mindful that hearsay evidence is presumptively inadmissible. The trial judge's function is to guard against the admission of hearsay evidence, which is unnecessary in the context of the issue to be decided or the reliability of which is neither readily apparent from the trustworthiness of its contents, nor capable of being meaningfully tested by the ultimate trier of fact. In the context of a criminal case, the accused inability to test the evidence may impact on the fairness of the trial, thereby giving the rule a constitutional dimension. Concerns over trial fairness not only permeate the decision on admissibility, but also inform the residual discretion of the trial judge to exclude the evidence, even if necessity and reliability can be shown. As in all cases, the trial judge has the discretion to exclude admissible evidence where its prejudicial effect is out of proportion to its probative value. As I will explain, I have concluded that the factors to be considered on the admissibility inquiry cannot be categorized in terms of threshold and ultimate reliability. Comments to the contrary in previous decisions of this court should no longer be followed. Rather, all relevant factors should be considered, including, in appropriate cases, the presence of supporting or contradictory evidence. In each case, the scope of the inquiry must be tailored to the particular dangers presented by the evidence and limited to determining the evidentiary question of admissibility. In May 1999, five elderly residents of a retirement home told various people that they were assaulted by the manager of the home, the respondent, Ram Nareen Kalawan. At the time of trial, approximately two and a half years later, four of the complainants had died of causes unrelated to the assaults, and the fifth was no longer competent to testify. Only one of the complainants had testified at the preliminary inquiry. The central issue at trial was whether the hearsay statements provided by the complainants had sufficient threshold reliability to be received in evidence. Justice Grassi held that the hearsay statements from each of the complainants were sufficiently reliable to be admitted in evidence, based in large part on the striking similarity between them. He ultimately found Mr. Kalawan guilty of the offenses in respect of two of the complainants, Mr. Scupine and Mr. Danino, and acquitted him on the remaining counts. Mr. Kelowan was sentenced to two and a half years of imprisonment for the offenses relating to Mr. Scupine and an additional two years for the offenses relating to Mr. Danino. On appeal to the Court of Appeal for Ontario, Appeal Justice Rosenberg with Appeal Justice Armstrong concurring excluded all statements and acquitted Mr. Kelowan. Appeal Justice Blair in dissent would have upheld the convictions in respect of Mr. Scupine only. The Crown appeals to this court as of right, seeking to restore the convictions relating to Mr. Scupine. 
The Crown also sought but was denied leave in respect of the charges relating to Mr. Danino. In my view, Mr. Scupin's videotaped statement to the police was inadmissible. Although Mr. Scupin's death before the commencement of the trial made it necessary to resort to his evidence in this form, the statement was not sufficiently reliable to overcome the dangers it presented. The circumstances in which it came about did not provide reasonable assurances of inherent reliability. To the contrary, they gave rise to a number of serious issues, including whether Mr. Scupin was mentally competent, whether he understood the consequences of making his statement, whether he was influenced in making the allegations by a disgruntled employee who had been fired by Mr. Kellowan, whether his statement was motivated by a general dissatisfaction about the management of the home, and whether his injuries were caused by a fall rather than by the assault. In these available circumstances, Mr. Scupin's unavailability for cross-examination posed significant limitations on the accused ability to test the evidence, and in turn, on the trier of facts' ability to properly assess its worth. The statements made by other complainants posed even greater difficulties and could not be substantively admitted to assist in assessing the reliability of Mr. Scupin's allegations. In all the circumstances, particularly given that the Crown's case against Mr. Kellowan was founded on the hearsay statement, the admission of the evidence risked impairing the fairness of the trial and should not have been permitted. As Justice Rosenberg aptly noted, the admission of the evidence under the principled approach to the hearsay rule is not the only way the evidence of witnesses who may be available for trial may be preserved. Section 709 and 714 of the Criminal Code expressly contemplate this eventuality and provide a procedure for the taking of the evidence before a commissioner in the presence of the accused or his counsel, thereby preserving both the evidence and rights of the accused. For the reasons that follow, I would therefore dismiss the appeal and affirm the acquittals. Part 2. Background Mr. Kalawan was charged with aggravated assault on Teofil Scupin and threatening to cause him death. He was also charged with aggravated assault and assault with a weapon on Attilo Danino, an assault causing bodily harm on three other complainants. The offenses were alleged to have occurred during the month of May 1999, and at the time, all the complainants were residents of the Bloor West Village Retirement Home. Mr. Kalawan was the manager of the retirement home and his mother was the owner. As indicated earlier, none of the complainants was available to testify at trial. Hence, the central issue concerned the admissibility of their hearsay statements made to various people. There were 10 statements in total, four of which consisted of videotaped statements made to the police. At trial, held before Justice Grassi, without a jury, proceeded essentially as a voir dire into the admissibility of the evidence, with counsel agreeing that it would not be necessary to repeat the evidence about any statements later ruled admissible. None of the statements fit within any traditional exception to the hearsay rule. Their admissibility, rather, was contingent upon the Crown meeting the twin requirements of necessity and reliability under the principled approach to the hearsay rule as established in Kahn, Smith, and later, Starr. The charges concerning Mr. Scupin are the only matters before this court. I will therefore summarize the evidence concerning Mr. Scupin's statements in more detail. I will also describe the circumstances surrounding the taking of the statements from the other complainants to the extent that it is relevant to dispose of this appeal. The Crown sought to introduce three statements made by Mr. Scupin. The first to an employee of the retirement home, the second to the doctor who treated him for his injuries, and the third to the police. 
Only the latter was admitted at trial. I will describe each statement in turn. Mr. Scoopine's statement to Miss Stangrat. Mr. Scoopine was 81 years old, and at the time of the events in question, he had lived at Bloor West Village Retirement Home for four years. Mr. Scoopine's initial complaint was made to one of the employees at the retirement home, Joanna Stangrat. Miss Stangrat, also known under several other names, was a cook who had been working at the retirement home for a few months. She had come to know Mr. Scoopine because he would often visit the kitchen and would sometimes walk her to the subway at the end of her shifts. Miss Stangrat played a prominent role in the case concerning Mr. Scoopine. In part, it was the theory of the defense at trial that she had influenced Mr. Scoopine and the other complainants in making their complaints out of spite because Mr. Kellowan had given her a notice of termination a few weeks earlier. On May 8, 1999, Miss Stangrat noticed that Mr. Scoopine did not come to breakfast. She went to check on him in his room and found him lying in his bed. His face was red and there was blood around his mouth. When she got closer to him, she saw bruising on his eye and nose. His eyes were swollen. When Mr. Scoopine saw her, he asked her to come in and close the door. He appeared to be in shock and very shaky. Miss Stangrat noted two full green garbage bags on the floor. She closed the door and asked him what had happened and what was in the green garbage bags. Mr. Scoopine told her what had happened the previous evening. He also showed her bruises on his upper left chest area. Mr. Scoopine told Miss Stangrat that he had to leave before 12 o'clock that day because Tony, the name Mr. Kelleron went by, would come back and kill him. Mr. Scoopine described to Miss Stangrat how Mr. Kelleron had come into his room in anger at about 8 p.m. the previous evening and had punched him repeatedly in the face and ribs. After beating him up, Mr. Kelleron had packed the clothes into the green garbage bags and left them on the floor. Ms. Stangrat asked Mr. Scoopine why Mr. Kelowan would attack him in this way. He told her that Tony was angry because Mr. Scoopine had been going to the kitchen when he had no reason to go there. When the assault ended, Mr. Kelowan threatened Mr. Scoopine that either he moved out of the home by noon the next day or he would return and kill him. Mr. Scoopine asked her what he should do. Ms. Stangrat told him she would phone her daughter to come and get him and that he should stay in his room until she was finished with her duties for the day. Ms. Stangrat arranged for Mr. Scoopine to stay at her daughter's home later that day and then to her apartment. Mr. Scoopine was in pain, but he was scared and did not want to see a doctor at that time. Ms. Stangrat kept Mr. Scoopine at her apartment, where she and a friend of hers alternated caring for him. A few days later, Mr. Scoopine agreed to go to the doctor. Ms. Stangrat and her friend took him to see Dr. Pietrzek. Mr. Scoopine's statement to the treating physician. On May 12, 1999, Dr. Pietrzek examined Mr. Scoopine. He found visible bruising to Mr. Scoopine's face, as well as bruises to his back and on the left side of his chest, and noted that Mr. Scoopine appeared to be in pain while breathing. X-rays revealed that he had suffered fractures to three ribs. Dr. Petrozek testified that Mr. Scoopine told him he had been hit in the face and body with something that was either a cane or a pipe. He denied any suggestion that Ms. Stangrad had related the story, but acknowledged that she was present and may have helped him in describing what had happened. Dr. Petrozek considered that the injuries were consistent with Mr. Scoopine's account of how they were caused. He also testified that the injuries could have resulted from a fall. Mr. Scoopine's videotaped statement to police. The following day, on May 13, 1999, 
Ms. Stangrat took Mr. Scoopine to the police. Detective Carpal took his complaint. He observed bruising to the left side of Mr. Scoopine's face in the eye area. He arranged for Mr. Scoopine to give a videotaped statement. Both Detective Carpow and Constable John Burrell were present. The statement was not given under oath. However, Mr. Scoopine was asked if he understood that it was very important that he tell the truth and that if he did not tell the truth, he could be charged with that. Mr. Scoopine answered yes to both questions. After a few other preliminary questions, he was asked what his complaint was. Mr. Scoopine described how on May 7, 1999, Tony came into his room and said, enough is enough. He then began beating him by slapping him and punching him in the face, the ribs, and all over, telling him not to go into the kitchen. He said that if he did not leave, he would come by 12 o'clock the next day and shoot him. Mr. Scoopine then went on at some length to make several complaints about the general management of the retirement home until Detective Carpel brought him back to the matter at hand by asking him further questions about the incident and the events that followed. Mr. Scoopine was generally responsive to the officer's questions. After the interview was completed, Mr. Calawan was arrested. Further investigation. Ms. Stangrat gave the police a list of other people that she thought they should speak to at their retirement home. The next day, on May 14, 1999, several police officers attended the home to seek these people out. Because there were no markings on the doors, the police had to search through the residence, speaking to the residents and nursing staff. When some of the people were located, they were found to be unresponsive and no meaningful interviews could be conducted with them. Others, however, were able and willing to speak. The police would identify themselves as police, then ask the residents how things were going at the home and if anything had happened to them that they wanted to talk about. The police arranged to take videotaped statements from those who wanted to speak to them. These included three of the other complainants, Mr. Danino, Mr. Polziak, and Mr. Grucholska. The fourth complainant, Mr. Petzerer, could not communicate with the police. However, his son provided a videotaped statement. Medical records. On May 15, 1999, Detective Karpow attended at the retirement home and met with Dr. Michalski, a physician who attended regularly at the home to see the residents. On May 18, 1999, the police returned to the home and seized the medical records in a journal containing nursing notes. Documentation from Mr. Scoopin's file revealed that he had been living in an apartment before suffering a stroke in February 1995. He was transferred to the retirement home in April 1995. A report dated April 13, 1995, noted his condition after the stroke. He suffered occasional periods of confusion, could not go outside on his own, needed help with meal preparation and banking, and had to be reminded to take his medication, but was able to perform all self-care tasks. Dr. Machalski's file noted frequent contact with Mr. Scoopin during his stay at the retirement home. From time to time, he was described as depressed, aggressive, angry, and paranoid. A diagnosis of paranoid psychosis was made in June 1998, and medication was prescribed. In July 1998, some improvements in paranoia was noted. In August 1998, he was described as angry, hostile, and his dosage was increased. In August 1998, he was described as confused. The possibility of dementia was first noted. In September 1998, he was diagnosed with depression and prescribed medication. 
In September 1998, improvement with depression was noted, and although apparently eliminated in January 1999, depression was again noted in February 1999. The notes also reflect a number of complaints of fatigue, weakness, and dizziness. Expert Evidence on the Voir Dire Dr. Susan Leaf, a geriatric psychiatrist, was qualified to provide opinion evidence on the voir dire with respect to Mr. Scoopine's capacity to understand the importance of telling the truth and communicate evidence. She also provided an opinion with respect to Mr. Danino. Her opinion was based solely on her review of the videotaped interviews and medical records. With regard to Mr. Scoopine, Dr. Leaf testified that the videotape did not reveal any impaired judgment, delusions, or hallucinations, or intellectual pathology. He seemed to comprehend what was asked and respond appropriately. In Dr. Leaf's view, Mr. Scoopine's affirmative answer, yes, when advised of the need to be truthful, reflected a clear understanding. Dr. Leaf did not consult with Dr. Michalski, but took issue with his diagnosis of dementia. In her opinion, the symptoms observed by Dr. Michalski were more likely side effects of the antipsychotic medication he was taking at the time. Dr. Leaf concluded that Mr. Scoopine understood that it was important to tell the truth and that he had the capacity to communicate evidence. Part 3. The Trial Judge's Ruling on Admissibility As a preliminary issue, the trial judge ruled that the four complainants who had given videotaped statements were competent at the time within the meaning of Section 16 of the Canada Evidence Act, which he interpreted as requiring that witnesses must know the importance of telling the truth and must be able to communicate the evidence. In support of this finding, the trial judge relied on his own viewing of the videotapes and on Dr. Leaf's opinion evidence. The mental capacity of the hearsay declarant is a relevant factor on an inquiry into the statement's admissibility as it may impact on the reliability of the hearsay statement. However, it is important to note that Section 16 has no application here. Section 16 sets out the threshold competency requirements for receiving the testimony of a witness in court. The threshold is a low one and the witness's testimony, if received, is then subject to cross in the usual way including on any relevant matter concerning the witness's mental state. The inquiry into the admissibility of a hearsay statement may require more extensive probing into the declarant's mental competency at the time of making the statement, when there is no opportunity to cross-examine the declarant. After determining the Section 16 issue, the trial judge considered the necessity criterion. Although certain questions were raised at trial as to whether this criterion was met with respect to some of the complainant's statements, None of the issues concerned Mr. Scoopine and hence need not be reviewed here. Finally, the trial judge turned to the question of threshold reliability. He determined that all videotaped statements to the police met the reliability requirement. In support of this finding, he noted that there was nothing untoward in the police procedure in taking the statements. And although three of the complainant's statements were taken at the retirement home rather than at the police station, he found that the circumstances of taking the statements were as formal and solemn as could be expected in the situation. He noted that there was no animosity directed at the accused by the other complainants in their statements, other than voicing their complaint. The complainants appeared forthright, they were not evasive, and they did not attempt to overstate their injuries. There were no exceedingly leading questions, and to the extent that there was leading, it went to weight rather than admissibility. All of the statements were contemporaneous or made shortly after the events they described. They knew their assailant well and there was no realistic alternative suspect. Further, both Mr. Scoopine and Mr. Danino had corroborating injuries. 
The crux of the trial judge's ruling, however, appears to have been his application of the decision of this court in UFJ, in which the complainant's out-of-court statement was admitted on the ground of its striking similarity with the accused statements concerning the same events. Throughout his reasons, the trial judge made repeated references to the similarity between the statements and concluded that the cumulative combination of similar points renders the overall similarity between the statements sufficiently distinctive to reject a coincidence as a likely explanation. While he found that the oral statements were also sufficiently similar to fit the principal and the queen in UFJ, he held, citing paragraph 217 in Star as authority, that to admit them would be oath-helping, in that I have the video statements. In the trial judge's view, the only real hearsay danger raised by the admission of the statements was the absence of cross-examination. But citing Smith as authority, he concluded that reliable evidence should not be excluded for this reason alone. The public interest in the elderly receiving good care allowed him to take the video statements together to bolster the complainant's credibility. He therefore ruled the videotaped statements admissible and the oral statements inadmissible. At the conclusion of the trial, Justice Grassi ultimately found only two of the videotaped statements sufficiently credible to found a conviction, those of Mr. Danino and Mr. Scupine. Since this appeal concerns the admissibility ruling only, it is not necessary to review the reasons for conviction. It is common ground between the parties that if Mr. Scupine's statements are inadmissible, the convictions must be set aside and the appeal dismissed. Part 4. Court of Appeal for Ontario Mr. Kellawan appealed his convictions on the ground that the trial judge erred in admitting the videotaped statements. The Court of Appeal was unanimous in finding that Mr. Danino's statement was not sufficiently reliable to warrant admission. A majority of the court found that Mr. Scupine's statement was also inadmissible due to its unreliability. All three justices interpreted the trial judge's reasons as holding that without the similarity among the statements of the various complainants, none met the requirement of reliability and would therefore have been inadmissible. The court therefore focused on this aspect of the evidence and, indeed, the source of the disagreement between the majority and the dissent was whether the similarity of the statements was a permissible consideration in assessing reliability under the principled approach. Appeal Justice Rosenberg, writing for the majority, held that the principle from UFJ could be applied only where the statements relate to the same event and in most cases would be applied only where the declarant is available for cross-examination. Here, the statements relate to different incidents. Although a trier of fact might conclude, using similar fact reasoning, that the same person committed all of the crimes, this is an issue going to ultimate reliability, not threshold reliability. Only the latter is relevant in determining admissibility. In addition, Appeal Justice Rosenberg held that the comparator statements must also be substantively admissible, because the final decision as to the likelihood of coincidence or collusion rests with the trier of fact, and it would be odd for the trier of fact to be assessing ultimate reliability without access to the very piece of evidence that convinced the trial judge that the statement was reliable. In Justice Grassi's decision, therefore, it was an impermissible expansion of the principle in UFJ. Appeal Justice Rosenberg also held at paragraph 92 that such an expansion was inconsistent with the statement of Justice Yakabuchi and Starr that corroborating evidence should not be considered in determining threshold reliability. In dissent, Appeal Justice Blair held that the central notion underpinning the UFJ exception was that absent collusion, 
prior knowledge, or improper influence, striking similarities between statements belie coincidence and therefore bolster the reliability of the statement under consideration. While he held that the absence of cross-examination remained a factor to be weighed in assessing threshold reliability, he was of the view that its absence, in and of itself, was not an impediment to the principled application of the UFJ exception. He also found that the exception could apply where the statements related to different events, stating that, for the purpose of finding threshold reliability, he could see no logical difference between statements concerning the same accused doing the same thing on the same occasion and the same accused doing the same thing on different occasions, drawing on the rationale for similar fact reasoning, since both involved admitting evidence on the basis of the improbability of coincidence. Finally, he found that finding that the comparator statements are not substantially admissible should not exclude them from the reliability analysis, pointing out that otherwise reliable statements could be held inadmissible for a variety of reasons, including a finding that they were not necessary. On the basis of these conclusions, Justice Blair held that the trial judge had not erred in considering the similarity among the statements in determining their threshold reliability. He then went on to apply the UFJ exception to the statements at issue on appeal and held that although the videotaped statement of Mr. Danino was inadmissible, the videotaped statement of Mr. Scupine was. Part 5. Rule Against Hearsay General Exclusionary Rule The basic rule of evidence is that all relevant evidence is admissible. There are a number of exceptions to this basic rule. One of the main exceptions is the rule against hearsay. Absence an exception, hearsay evidence is not admissible. Hearsay evidence is not excluded because it is irrelevant. There is no need for a special rule to exclude irrelevant evidence. Rather, as we shall see, it is the difficulty of testing hearsay evidence that underlies the exclusionary rule, and generally, the alleviation of this difficulty that forms the basis of the exceptions to the rule. Although hearsay evidence includes communications expressed by conduct, I will generally refer to hearsay statements only. Definition of hearsay. At the outset, it is important to determine what is and what is not hearsay. The difficulties in defining hearsay encountered by courts and learned authorities have been canvassed before and need not be repeated here. It is sufficient to note, as this court did in Star at paragraph 159, that the more recent definitions of hearsay are focused on the central concern underlying the hearsay rule, the difficulty of testing the reliability of the declarant's assertion. Our adversary system puts a premium on the calling of witnesses who testify under oath or solemn affirmation, whose demeanor can be observed by the trier of fact, and whose testimony can be tested by cross-examination. We regard this process as the optimal way of testing testimonial evidence. Because hearsay evidence comes in a different form, it raises particular concerns. The general exclusionary rule is a recognition of the difficulty for a trier of fact to assess what weight, if any, is to be given to a statement made by a person who has not been seen or heard and who has not been subject to the test of cross-examination. The fear is that untested hearsay evidence may be afforded more weight than it deserves. The essential defining features of hearsay are therefore the following. One, the fact that the statement is adduced to prove the truth of its contents and two, the absence of a contemporaneous opportunity to cross-examine the declarant. I will deal with each defining feature in turn. 
statements adduced for their truth. The purpose for which the out-of-court statement is tendered matters in defining what constitutes hearsay because it is only when the evidence is tendered to prove the truth of its contents that the need to test its reliability arises. Consider the following example. At an accused trial on a charge for impaired driving, a police officer testifies that he stopped the accused's car because he received information from an unidentified caller that the car was driven by a person who had just left a local tavern in a very drunk condition. If the statement about the inebriated condition of the driver is introduced for the sole purpose of establishing the police officer's grounds for stopping the vehicle, it does not matter whether the unidentified caller's statement was accurate, exaggerated, or even false. Even if the statement is totally unfounded, that fact does not take away from the officer's explanation of his actions. If, on the other hand, the statement is tendered as proof that the accused was in fact impaired, the trier of fact's inability to test the reliability of the statement raises real concerns. Hence, only in the latter circumstances the evidence about the caller's statement defined as hearsay and subject to the general exclusionary rule absence of a contemporaneous cross-examination. The previous example, namely where the witness tells the court what A told him, is the more obvious form of hearsay evidence. A is not before the court to be seen, heard, and cross-examined. However, the traditional law of hearsay also extends to out-of-court statements made by the witness who does testify in court when that out-of-court statement is tendered to prove the truth of its contents. This extended definition of hearsay has been adopted in Canada. It is important to understand the rationale for treating a witness's out-of-court statement as hearsay. When the witness repeats or adopts an earlier out-of-court statement in court, under oath or solemn affirmation, of course no hearsay issue arises. The statement itself is not evidence, the testimony is the evidence, and it can be tested in the usual way by observing the witness and subjecting him or her to cross-examination. The hearsay issue does arise, however, when the witness does not repeat or adopt the information contained in the out-of-court statement, and the statement itself is tendered for the truth of its contents. Consider the following example to illustrate the concerns raised by this evidence. In an out-of-court statement, W identifies the accused as her assailant. At the trial of the accused on a charge of assault, W testifies that the accused is not her assailant. The Crown seeks to tender the out-of-court statement as proof of the fact that the accused did assault W. In these circumstances, the trier of fact is asked to accept the out-of-court statement over the sworn testimony of the witness. Given the usual premium placed on the value of in-court testimonial evidence, a serious issue arises as to whether it is at all necessary to introduce the statement. In addition, the reliability of the statement becomes crucial. How trustworthy is it? In what circumstances did W make that statement? Was it made casually to friends at a social function, or rather, to the police as a formal complaint? Was W aware of the potential consequences of making that statement? Did she intend that it be acted upon? Did she have a motive to lie? In what condition was W at the time she made the statement? Many more questions can come to mind on matters that relate to the reliability of that out-of-court statement. While the trier of fact is asked to consider the out-of-court statement as proof that the accused in fact assaulted W, assessing its reliability may prove to be difficult. 
Concerns over the reliability of the statement also arise where W does not recant the out-of-court statement but testifies that she has no memory of making the statement, or worse still, no memory of the assault itself. The trier of fact does not see or hear the witness making the statement, and because there is no opportunity to cross-examine the witness contemporaneously with the making of the statement, there may be limited opportunity for a meaningful testing of its truth. In addition, an issue may arise as to whether the prior statement is fully and accurately reported. Hence, although the underlying rationale for the general exclusionary rule may not be as obvious when the declarant is available to testify, it is the same. The difficulty of testing the reliability of the out-of-court statement. The difficulty of assessing W's out-of-court statement is the reason why it falls within the definition of hearsay and is subject to the general exclusionary rule. As one may readily appreciate, however, the degree of difficulty may be substantially alleviated in cases where the declarant is available for cross-examination on the earlier statement, particularly where an accurate record of the statement can be tendered in evidence. I will come back to that point later. My point here is simply to explain why, by definition, hearsay extends to out-of-court statements tendered for their truth even when the declarant is before the court. Hearsay exceptions, a principled approach. It has long been recognized that the rigid application of the exclusionary rule would result in the unwarranted loss of much valuable evidence. The hearsay statement, because of the way in which it came about, may be inherently reliable, or there may be sufficient means of testing it despite its hearsay form. Hence, a number of common law exceptions were gradually created. A rigid application of these exceptions, in turn, proved problematic, leading to the needless exclusion of evidence in some cases, or its unwarranted admission in others. Wigmore urged greater flexibility in the application of the rule based on the two guiding principles that underlie the traditional common law exceptions, necessity and reliability. This court first accepted this approach in Kahn and later recognized its primacy in Starr. The governing framework based on Starr was recently summarized in The Queen and Mapera. Quote, A. Hearsay evidence is presumptively inadmissible unless it falls under an exception to the hearsay rule. The traditional exceptions to the hearsay rule remain presumptively in place. B. A hearsay exception can be challenged to determine whether it is supported by indicia of necessity and reliability required by the principled approach. The exception can be modified as necessary to bring it into compliance. C. In rare cases, evidence falling within an existing exception may be excluded because the indicia of necessity and reliability are lacking in the particular circumstances of the case. D. If hearsay evidence does not fall under a hearsay exception, it may still be admitted if indicia of reliability and necessity are established on a voir dire." End quote. In this case, we are concerned with the admission of evidence under item D. In particular, two courts below were divided over two main questions. One, what factors must be considered in deciding whether the evidence is sufficiently reliable to be admitted? And two, whether the exception recognized by this court in UFJ can be extended to the facts of this case. I will comment first on the second question. In my view, the discussion over whether the UFJ exception applies here exemplifies the concern expressed in UFJ itself, that the new approach to hearsay does not itself become a rigid, pigeonholing analysis. 
In UFJ, there was a similar debate over whether the BKG exception to the rule against substantive admission of prior inconsistent statements extended to circumstances where the reliability of the complainant's statement was based, not so much on the circumstances in which it came about, as was the case in BKG, but on its striking similarity to a statement made by the accused. Chief Justice Lemaire explained how his decision in BKG was an application of the principled approach to hearsay, and how, in addition, a threshold of reliability can sometimes be established in cases where the witness is available for cross-examination by a striking similarity between two statements. He concluded his analysis by anticipating that yet other situations may arise. He stated the following at paragraph 45. Quote, I anticipate that instances of statements so strikingly similar as to bolster their reliability will be rare. In keeping with our principled and flexible approach to hearsay, other situations may arise where prior inconsistent statements will be judged substantively admissible, bearing in mind that cross-examination alone provides significant indications of reliability. It is not necessary in this case to decide if cross-examination alone provides an adequate assurance of threshold reliability to allow substantive omission of prior inconsistent statements." End quote. As I will discuss later, both BKG and UFJ highlight the particular concerns raised in cases of prior inconsistent statements. However, following Chief Justice Lemay's own words of caution against rigid pigeonholing analysis, it is my view that neither BKG nor UFJ should be interpreted as creating categorical exceptions to the rule against hearsay based on fixed criteria. The majority judgment in BKG itself leaves room for appropriate substitutes for the criteria it sets out. Further, to interpret these categories as creating new categories of exceptions would not be in keeping with the flexible case-by-case principled approach. We would simply be replacing the traditional set of exceptions with a new and for the time being less ossified one. Rather, these cases provide guidance, not fixed categories, on the application of the principled case-by-case approach by identifying the relevant concerns and the factors to be considered in determining admissibility. I will review BKG and UFJ in this light as well as some other relevant decisions from this court. Since the issues raised on this appeal relate to the assessment of reliability, my analysis will be focused on that criterion. However, as I will explain, necessity and reliability should not be considered in isolation. One criterion may impact the other. For example, as we shall see, in some cases, the need for the evidence may, in large part, be based on the fact that the hearsay statement is highly reliable and the fact-finding process would be distorted without it. However, before I discuss the factors relating to reliability, I want to say a word on the overarching principle of trial fairness. Constitutional dimension, trial fairness. Prior to admitting hearsay statements under the principled exception to the hearsay rule, the trial judge must determine on a voir dire that necessity and reliability have been established. The onus is on the person who seeks to adduce the evidence to establish these criteria on a balance of probabilities. In a criminal context, the inquiry may take on a constitutional dimension because difficulties in testing the evidence, or conversely, the inability to present reliable evidence, may impact on an accused's ability to make full answer in defense, a right protected by Section 7 of the Charter. The right to make full answer in defense in turn is linked to another principle of fundamental justice, the right to a fair trial. 
The concern over trial fairness is one of the paramount reasons for rationalizing the traditional hearsay exceptions in accordance with the principled approach. As stated by Justice Yakabuchi and Starr, in respect of Crown evidence, it would compromise trial fairness and raise the specter of wrongful convictions if the Crown is allowed to introduce unreliable hearsay against the accused, regardless of whether it happens to fall within an existing exception. As indicated earlier, our adversary system is based on the assumption that sources of untrustworthiness or inaccuracy can best be brought to light under the test of cross-examination. It is mainly because of the inability to put hearsay evidence to that test that it is presumptively inadmissible. However, the constitutional right guaranteed under Section 7 of the Charter is not the right to confront or cross-examine adverse witnesses in itself. The adversarial trial process, which includes cross-examination, is but the means to achieve the end. Trial fairness, as a principle of fundamental justice, is the end that must be achieved. Trial fairness embraces more than the rights of the accused. While it undoubtedly includes the right to make full answer and defense, the fairness of the trial must also be assessed in light of broader societal concerns. In the context of an admissibility inquiry, society's interest in having the trial process arrive at the truth is one such concern. The broader spectrum of interest encompassed in trial fairness is reflected in the twin principles of necessity and reliability. The criterion of necessity is founded on society's interest in getting at the truth. Because it is not always possible to meet the optimal test of contemporaneous cross-examination, rather than simply losing the value of the evidence, it becomes necessary in the interests of justice to consider whether it should nonetheless be admitted in its hearsay form. The criterion of reliability is about ensuring the integrity of the trial process. The evidence, although needed, is not admissible unless it is sufficiently reliable to overcome the dangers arising from the difficulty of testing it. As we shall see, the reliability requirement will generally be met on the basis of two different grounds, neither of which excludes consideration of the other. In some cases, because of the circumstances in which it came about, the contents of the hearsay statement may be so reliable that contemporaneous cross-examination of the declarant would add little, if anything, to the process. In other cases, the evidence may not be so cogent, but the circumstances will allow for sufficient testing of evidence by means other than contemporaneous cross-examination. In these circumstances, the admission of the evidence will rarely undermine trial fairness. However, because trial fairness may encompass factors beyond the strict inquiry into necessity and reliability, even if the two criteria are met, the trial judge has the discretion to exclude hearsay evidence where its probative value is outweighed by its prejudicial effect. Part 6. The Admissibility Inquiry Distinction between threshold and ultimate reliability, a source of confusion. As stated earlier, the trial judge only decides whether hearsay evidence is admissible. Whether the hearsay statement will or will not be ultimately relied upon in deciding the issues in the case is a matter for the trier of fact to determine at the conclusion of the trial based on a consideration of the statement in the context of the entirety of the evidence. It is important that the trier of facts domain not be encroached upon at the admissibility stage. If the trial is before a judge and jury, it is crucial that questions of ultimate reliability be left for the jury. In a criminal trial, it is constitutionally imperative. 
If the trial judge sits without a jury, it is equally important that he or she not prejudge the ultimate reliability of the evidence before having heard all of the evidence in the case. Hence, a distinction must be made between ultimate reliability and threshold reliability. Only the latter is inquired into on the admissibility of Wadir. The distinction between threshold and ultimate reliability has been made in a number of cases. But we are mainly concerned here with the elaboration of this principle in STAR. In particular, the following excerpt from the court's analysis has been the subject of much of the discussion and commentary. Quote, in this connection, it is important when examining the reliability of a statement under the principled approach to distinguish between threshold and ultimate reliability. Only the former is relevant to admissibility. Again, it is not appropriate in the circumstances of this appeal to provide an exhaustive catalog of the factors that may influence threshold reliability. However, our jurisprudence does provide some guidance on this subject. Threshold reliability is concerned not with whether the statement is true or not. That is a question of ultimate reliability. Instead, it is concerned with whether or not the circumstances surrounding the statement itself provide circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness. This could be because the declarant had no motive to lie or because there were safeguards in place such that a lie could be discovered. At the stage of hearsay admissibility, the trial judge should not consider the declarant's general reputation for truthfulness, nor any prior or subsequent statements consistent or not. These factors do not concern the circumstances of the statement itself. Similarly, I would not consider the presence of corroborating or conflicting evidence. On this point, I agree with the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in the Queen and CB. In summary, under the principled approach, a court must not invade the province of the trier of fact and condition admissibility of hearsay on whether the evidence is ultimately reliable. However, it will need to examine whether the circumstances in which the statement was made lend sufficient credibility to allow a finding of threshold reliability." End quote. The court's statement that threshold reliability is concerned not with whether the statement is true or not has created some uncertainty. While it is clear that the trial judge does not determine whether the statement will ultimately be relied upon as true, it is not so clear that in every case, threshold reliability is not concerned with whether the statement is true or not. Indeed, in UFJ, the rationale for admitting the complainant's hearsay statement was based on the fact that the only likely explanation for its striking similarity with the other independent statement of the accused was that they were both telling the truth. Further, it is not easy to discern what is or is not a circumstance surrounding the statement itself. For example, in Smith, the fact that the deceased may have had a motive to lie was considered by the court in determining threshold admissibility. As both Appeal Justice Rosenberg and Appeal Justice Blair point out in their respective reasons, in determining whether the declarant had a motive to lie, the judge will necessarily be driven to consider factors outside the statement itself or the immediate surrounding circumstances. Much of the confusion in this area of law has arisen from this attempt to categorically label some factors as going only to ultimate reliability. The bar against considering corroborating or conflicting evidence because it is only relevant to the question of ultimate reliability is a further example. Quite clearly, the corroborative nature of the semen stain in Khan played an important part in establishing the threshold reliability of the child's hearsay statement in that case. This part of the analysis in STAR therefore requires clarification and in some respects consideration. 
I will explain how the relevant factors to be considered on an admissibility inquiry cannot invariably be categorized as relating either to the threshold or ultimate reliability. Rather, the relevance of any particular factor will depend on the particular dangers arising from the hearsay nature of the statement and the available means, if any, of overcoming them. I will then return to the impugned passage in Star, dealing more specifically with the question of supporting evidence, since that reference appears to have raised the most controversy. Identifying the relevant factors, a functional approach. Recognizing hearsay. The first matter to determine before embarking on a hearsay admissibility inquiry, of course, is whether the proposed evidence is hearsay. This may seem to be a rather obvious matter, but it is an important first step. Misguided objections to the admissibility of an out-of-court statement based on a misunderstanding of what constitutes hearsay are not uncommon. As discussed earlier, not all out-of-court statements will constitute hearsay. Recall the defining features of hearsay. An out-of-court statement will be hearsay when 1. it is adduced to prove the truth of its contents, and 2. there is no opportunity for a contemporaneous cross-examination of the declarant. Putting one's mind to the defining features of hearsay at the outset serves to better focus the admissibility inquiry. As we have seen, the first identifying feature of hearsay calls for an inquiry into the purpose for which it is adduced. Only when the evidence is being tendered for its truth will it constitute hearsay. The fact that the out-of-court statement is adduced for the truth should be considered in the context of the issues in the case so that the court may better assess the potential impact of introducing the evidence in its hearsay form. Second, by putting one's mind at the outset to the second defining feature of hearsay, the absence of an opportunity for contemporaneous cross-examination of the declarant, the admissibility inquiry is immediately focused on the dangers of admitting hearsay evidence. Justice Yakabuchi and Starr identified the inability to test the evidence as the central concern underlying the hearsay rule. Chief Justice Lemaire and UFJ expressed the same view but put it more directly by stating hearsay is inadmissible as evidence because its reliability cannot be tested. Presumptive inadmissibility of hearsay evidence. Once the proposed evidence is identified as hearsay, it is presumptively inadmissible. I stress the nature of the hearsay rule as a general exclusionary rule because the increased flexibility introduced in the Canadian law of evidence in the past few decades has sometimes tended to blur the distinction between admissibility and weight. Modifications have been made to a number of rules, including the rule against hearsay, to bring them up to date and to ensure that they facilitate, rather than impede, the goals of truth-seeking, judicial efficiency, and fairness in the adversarial process. However, the traditional rules of evidence reflect considerable wisdom and judicial experience. The modern approach has built upon their underlying rationale, not discarded it. In Star itself, where this court recognized the primacy of the principled approach to hearsay exceptions, the presumptive exclusion of hearsay evidence was reaffirmed in strong terms. Justice Yakabuchi stated as follows, by excluding evidence that might produce unfair verdicts, and by ensuring that litigants will generally have the opportunity to confront adverse witnesses, the hearsay rule serves as a cornerstone of a fair justice system. Traditional Exceptions The court in Star also reaffirmed the continuing relevance of the traditional exceptions to the hearsay rule. 
More recently, this court in Mapera reiterated the continued application of the traditional exceptions in setting out the governing analytical framework as noted in paragraph 42 above. Therefore, if the trial judge determines that the evidence falls within one of the traditional common law exceptions, this finding is conclusive and the evidence is ruled admissible unless, in a rare case, the exception itself is challenged as described in both those decisions. Principled Approach – Overcoming the Hearsay Dangers Since the central underlying concern is the inability to test hearsay evidence, it follows that under the principled approach the reliability requirement is aimed at identifying those cases where the difficulty is sufficiently overcome to justify receiving the evidence as an exception to the general exclusionary rule. As some courts and commentators have expressly noted, the reliability requirement is usually met in two different ways. One way is to show that there is no real concern about whether this statement is true or not because of the circumstances in which it came about. Common sense dictates that if we can put sufficient trust in the truth and accuracy of the statement, it should be considered by the fact finder regardless of its hearsay form. Wigmore explained it in this way. Quote, there are many situations in which it can be easily seen that such a required test would add little as a security because its purposes have been already substantially accomplished. If a statement has been made under such circumstances that even a skeptical caution would look upon it as trustworthy, in a high degree of probability, it would be pedantic to insist on a test whose chief objective is already secured. End quote. Another way of fulfilling the reliability requirement is to show that no real concern arises from the fact that the statement is presented in hearsay form because, in the circumstances, its truth and accuracy can nonetheless be sufficiently tested. Recall that the optimal way of testing evidence adopted by our adversarial system is to have the declarant state the evidence in court, under oath, and under the scrutiny of contemporaneous cross-examination. This preferred method is not just a vestige of past traditions. It remains a tried-and-true method, particularly when credibility issues must be resolved. It is one thing for a person to make a damaging statement about another in a context where it may not really matter. It is quite another for that person to repeat the statement in the course of formal proceedings, where he or she must commit to its truth and accuracy, be observed and heard, and be called upon to explain or defend it. The latter situation, in addition to providing an accurate record of what was actually said by the witness, gives us a much higher degree of comfort in the statement's trustworthiness. However, in some cases it is not possible to put the evidence to the optimal test, but the circumstances are such that the trier of fact will nonetheless be able to sufficiently test its truth and accuracy. Again, common sense tells us that we should not lose the benefit of the evidence when there are adequate substitutes for testing the evidence. These two principled ways of satisfying the reliability requirement can also be discerned in respect of the traditional exceptions to the hearsay rule. Justice Yakabuchi notes this distinction in Starr, stating as follows, quote, For example, testimony in former proceedings is admitted, at least in part, because many of the traditional dangers associated with hearsay are not present. A statement which was made under oath, subjected to cross-examination, and admitted as testimony at a former proceeding, is received in subsequent trial because the dangers underlying hearsay evidence are absent. Other exceptions are based not on negating traditional hearsay dangers, but on the fact that this statement provides circumstantial guarantees of reliability. This approach is embodied in recognized exceptions, 
such as dying declarations, spontaneous utterances, and statements against pecuniary interest, end quote. Some of the traditional exceptions stand on a different footing, such as admissions from parties, confessions in a criminal context, and co-conspirator statements. In those cases, concerns about reliability are based on considerations other than the party's inability to test the accuracy of his or her own statement or that of his or her co-conspirator. Hence, the criteria for admissibility are not established in the same way. However, in cases where the exclusionary rule is based on the usual hearsay dangers, this distinction between the two principled ways of satisfying the reliability requirement, although not by any means one that creates mutually exclusive categories, may assist in identifying what factors need to be considered on the admissibility inquiry. Khan is an example where the reliability requirement was met because the circumstances in which the statement came about provided sufficient comfort in its truth and accuracy. Similarly, in Smith, the focus of the admissibility inquiry was also on those circumstances that tended to show that the statement was true. On the other hand, the admissibility of the hearsay statement in BKG and Hawkins was based on the presence of adequate substitutes for testing the evidence. As we shall see, the availability of the declarant for cross-examination goes a long way to satisfying the requirement for adequate substitutes. In UFJ, the court considered both those circumstances tending to show that the statement was true and the presence of adequate substitutes for testing the evidence. UFJ underscores the heightened concern over reliability in the case of prior inconsistent statements where the trier of fact is invited to accept an out-of-court statement over the sworn testimony from the same declarant. I will briefly review how the analysis of the court in each of those cases was focused on overcoming the particular hearsay dangers raised by the evidence. The Queen and Khan As stated earlier, Khan is an example where the reliability requirement was met because the circumstances in which the statement came about provided sufficient comfort in its truth and accuracy. The facts are well known. Khan involved a sexual assault on a very young child by her doctor. The child was incompetent to testify. The child's statement to her mother about the incident were inadmissible under any of the traditional hearsay exceptions. However, the child's statement had several characteristics that suggested the statement was true. Those characteristics answered many of the concerns that one would expect would have been inquired into testing the evidence had it been available for presentation in open court in the usual way. Justice McLaughlin, in the following oft-quoted statement, summarized them in this way. Quote, I conclude that the mother's statement in the case at bar should have been received. It was necessary, the child's viva voce evidence having been rejected. It was also reliable. The child had no motive to falsify her story, which emerged naturally and without prompting. Moreover, the fact that she could not be expected to have knowledge of such sexual acts imbues her statement with its own peculiar stamp of reliability. Finally, her statement was corroborated by real evidence, end quote. The facts also revealed that the statement was made almost immediately after the event. The feature removed any concern about inaccurate memory. The fact that the child had no reason to lie alleviated the concern about sincerity. Because the statement was made naturally and without prompting, there was no real danger that it came about because of the mother's influence. Most importantly, as stated in the above excerpt, the event described was one that would ordinarily be outside the experience of a child of her age, giving it a peculiar stamp of reliability. 
Finally, the statement was confirmed by a semen stain on the child's clothing. These characteristics each went to the truth and accuracy of the statement, and taken together, amply justified its admission. The criterion of reliability was met. There is nothing controversial about the factors considered in Khan, except for the supportive evidence of the semen stain. I will come back to that point later. The Queen and Smith In Smith, this court's inquiry into the circumstantial guarantees of reliability was also focused on those circumstances that tended to show that the statement was true. Smith was charged with the murder of Kay. The Crown's evidence included the testimony of Kay's mother about four telephone calls Kay made to her on the night of the murder. Defense counsel did not object to this evidence. Smith was convicted at trial. The Court of Appeal allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial on the ground that the phone calls were hearsay and only the first two were admissible for the purposes of establishing Kay's state of mind. In refusing to apply the curative proviso, the Court of Appeal found that the hearsay had been used to place Smith with Kay at the time of her death, thereby buttressing certain identification evidence of questionable reliability. The Crown appealed to this court. After ruling that the state of mind or present intentions exception did not apply to phone calls, Chief Justice Lemel went on to elaborate and then to apply the approach outlined in Kahn. After quoting extensively from Wigmore on the underlying rationale for the hearsay rule and its exceptions, he elaborated on the reliability prong of the principled analysis and stated as follows. Quote, if a statement sought to be adduced by way of hearsay evidence is made under circumstances which substantially negate the possibility that the declarant was untruthful or mistaken, the hearsay evidence may be said to be reliable. An example of circumstantial guarantee of trustworthiness is established. End quote. In determining whether the phone calls were reliable, Chief Justice Lamel held that the first two were, but the third was not. The fourth was not at issue on appeal to this court. With respect to the first two, there was no reason to doubt Kay's veracity. She had no known reason to lie. And the traditional dangers associated with hearsay, perception, memory, and credibility were not present to any significant degree. As we can see, the court looked at the factors that would likely have been inquired into during the course of cross-examination if the declarant had been available to testify and found that these usual concerns were largely alleviated because of the way in which the statements came about. Hence, the court concluded that the absence of the ability to cross-examine Kay should go to the weight given to this evidence, not the admissibility. With respect to the third phone call, however, Chief Justice LaMail held that the conditions under which the statement was made do not provide the circumstantial guarantee of trustworthiness that would justify its admission without the possibility of cross-examination. First, he held that she may have been mistaken about Smith returning to the hotel or about his purpose in returning. Second, he held that she might have lied to prevent her mother from sending another man to pick her up. With respect to this second possibility, Chief Justice Lemaire held that the fact that Kay had been traveling under an assumed name with a credit card which she knew was either stolen or forged demonstrated that she was at least capable of deceit. Again, the court looked at factors that would likely have been inquired into during the course of cross-examination if the declarant had been available to testify, and concluded that these hypotheses showed that the circumstances of the statement were not such as to justify the admission of its contents, since it was impossible to say that the evidence was unlikely to change under cross-examination. It is important to note that the court did not go on to determine whether, on its view of the evidence, the declarant was mistaken, 
or whether she had lied. Those would be matters for the ultimate trier of fact to decide. On the admissibility inquiry, it sufficed that the circumstances in which the statement was made gave rise to these issues to bar its admission. The Queen and BKG BKG provides an example where the threshold reliability was essentially based on the presence of adequate substitutes for the traditional safeguards relied upon to test the evidence. The issue in BKG was the substantive admissibility of prior inconsistent statements made by three of B's friends, in which they told the police that B was responsible for stabbing and killing the victim in the course of a fight. The three recanted their statements at trial. They subsequently pled guilty to perjury. The Crown sought to admit the prior statements to police for the truth of their contents. Although the trial judge had no doubt the recantations were false, he followed the traditional common law rule that the statements could be used only to impeach the witnesses. In light of the doubtfulness on the other identification evidence, the trial judge acquitted B. The issue before this court was whether the orthodox rule in respect of prior inconsistent statements should be maintained. In reviewing its history, Chief Justice Lamel noted that, although the prohibition on hearsay was not always recognized as a basis for the rule, similar dangers were cited as reasons against admission, namely absence of an oath or affirmation, inability of the trier of fact to assess demeanor, and lack of contemporaneous cross-examination. After reviewing the academic criticism, the views of the law reform commissioners, legislative changes in Canada and elsewhere, and developments in the law of hearsay, Chief Justice Lamel concluded that it was the province and duty of the court to formulate a new rule. He held that evidence of prior inconsistent statements of a witness other than an accused should be substantively admissible on a principled basis following the court's decisions in Kahn and Smith, with the requirements of reliability and necessity adapted and refined in this particular context, given the particular problems raised by the nature of such statements. The most important contextual factor in BKG is the availability of the declarant. Unlike the situation in Kahn or Smith, the trier of fact is in a much better position to assess the reliability of the evidence because the declarant is available to be cross-examined on his or her prior inconsistent statement. The admissibility inquiry into threshold reliability, therefore, is not so focused on the question whether there is reason to believe the statement is true as it is on the question whether the trier of fact will be in a position to rationally evaluate the evidence. The search is for adequate substitutes for the process that would have been available had the evidence been presented in the usual way, namely through the witness, under oath or affirmation, and subject to the scrutiny of contemporaneous cross-exam. Since the declarant testifies in court, under oath or affirmation, and is available for cross-examination, the question becomes why there is any remaining concern over the reliability of the prior statement. As I have indicated earlier, necessity and reliability should not be considered in isolation. One criterion may have an impact on the other. The situation in BKG is one example. As noted by Chief Justice Lamel, prior inconsistent statements present vexing problems for the necessity criterion. Indeed, the declarant is available as a witness. Why should not the usual rule apply and the recanting witness's sworn testimony alone go to the truth of the matter? After all, is that not the optimal test on reliability, that the witness come forth and be seen and heard, swear or affirm to tell the truth in the formal context of court proceedings, and be subjected to cross-examination? 
If a witness recants a prior statement and denies its truth, the default position is to concede that the trial process has worked as intended. Untruthful or inaccurate information will have been weeded out. There must be good reason to present the prior inconsistent statement as substantive proof over the sworn testimony given in court. As we know, the court ultimately ruled in BKG, and the principle is now well established, that necessity is not to be equated with the unavailability of the witness. The necessity criterion is given a flexible definition. In some cases, such as in BKG, where a witness recants an earlier statement, necessity is based on the unavailability of the testimony, not the witness. Notwithstanding the fact that the necessity criterion can be met on varied bases, the context giving rise to the need for the evidence in its hearsay form may well impact on the degree of reliability required to justify the admission. As stated by Chief Justice Lamel in BKG, where the hearsay evidence is a prior inconsistent statement, reliability is a key concern. Chief Justice Lamel went on to describe the general attributes of in-court testimony that provide the usual safeguards for reliability. He reviewed at some length the compelling reasons to prefer statements made under oath or affirmation, the value of seeing and hearing the witness in assessing credibility, the importance of having an accurate record of what was actually said, and the value of contemporaneous cross-examination. In considering what would constitute an adequate substitute in respect of the prior inconsistent statement, he concluded that there will be sufficient circumstantial guarantees of reliability to render such statements substantively admissible where, quote, this statement is made under oath or solemn affirmation following a warning as to the existence of sanctions and the significance of the oath or affirmation. The statement is videotaped in its entirety and the opposing party has a full opportunity to cross-examine the witness respecting the statement. Alternatively, other circumstantial guarantees of reliability may suffice to render such statements substantively admissible, provided that the judge is satisfied that the circumstances provide adequate assurances of reliability in place of those which the hearsay rule traditionally requires." End quote. To say that a statement is sufficiently reliable because it is made under oath in person and the maker is cross-examined is somewhat of a misnomer. A lot of courtroom testimony proves to be totally unreliable. However, therein lies the safeguard, in the process that has uncovered its untrustworthiness. Hence, the presence of adequate substitutes for that process establishes a threshold of reliability and makes it safe to admit the evidence. Chief Justice Lamette also added an important proviso, to which I will return later, on the trial judge's discretion to refuse to allow the jury to make substantive use of the statement, even where the criteria outlined above are satisfied when there is any concern that the statement may be the product of some form of investigatory misconduct. Here, although the statements were videotaped and the witnesses were cross-examined, the statements were not made under oath. Whether there was sufficient substitute to warrant substantive admission was sent back to be determined by the trial judge. The appeal was allowed and a new trial was ordered. Justice Corey, with Justice Luray Dubé concurring, agreed with the result, but for different reasons that, for the purpose of our analysis, need not be reviewed here. The Queen and UFJ UFJ brought back to the court the issue of admissibility of prior inconsistent statements. In an interview with police, the complainant, J.U., told the interviewing officer that the accused, her father, was having sex with her almost every day. She gave considerable details about the sexual activity and also described two physical assaults. 
The interviewing police officer later testified that he had attempted to tape the interview, but that the tape recorder had malfunctioned. He subsequently prepared a summary based partly on notes and partly on his memory. Immediately after interviewing J.U., the same officer interviewed the accused. Again, the interview was not taped. The accused admitted to having sex with J.U. many times, describing similar sex acts and the two physical assaults that J.U. had described. At trial, J.U. recanted the allegations of sexual abuse. She claimed to have lied at the behest of her grandmother. The accused denied having told police that he had engaged in sexual activity with J.U. The focus of the discussion before this court was whether the rule in BKG applied to this case. Although the criteria in BKG were based on the principled approach in Kahn and Smith, it was not clear whether BKG established a distinct rule for admitting prior inconsistent statements. Chief Justice Lamel sought to clarify the relationship between these cases, stating as follows. Quote, Kahn and Smith established that hearsay evidence will be substantively admissible when it is necessary and sufficiently reliable. Those cases also state that both necessity and reliability must be interpreted flexibly, taking account of the circumstances of the case and ensuring that our new approach to hearsay does not itself become a rigid pigeonholing analysis. My decision in BKG is an application of those principles to a particular branch of the hearsay rule, the rule against the substantive admission of prior inconsistent statements. The primary distinction between BKG on the one hand and Kahn and Smith on the other is that in BKG the declarant is available for cross-examination. This fact alone goes part of the way to ensuring that the reliability criterion for admissibility is met. The case at bar differs from BKG only in terms of available indicia of reliability. Necessity is met here in the same way it was met in BKG. The prior statement is necessary because evidence of the same quality cannot be obtained at trial. For that reason, assessing the reliability of the prior inconsistent statement at issue here is determinative." End quote. Chief Justice Lamel went on to determine how the indicia of reliability could be founded on different criteria than those set out in BKG. The complainant's statement to the police was not made under oath, nor was it videotaped. Most importantly, however, the declarant was available for cross-examination, thereby significantly alleviating the usual dangers arising from the introduction of hearsay evidence. Yet, the same concerns about the reliability of the prior inconsistent statement arose in this case. The complainant had recanted her earlier allegations. In the usual course of the trial process, this should be the end of the matter. Consider, for example, if the complainant had made the earlier allegations about being sexually assaulted by her father to some girlfriends in the context of playing a game of truth or dare, where each player was being encouraged to outdo the previous one by saying or doing something outrageous. It would be difficult to find justification for introducing her casual statement as substantive proof over her sworn testimony that the events never happened. Hence, the focus must turn on the reliability of the prior inconsistent statement. In BKG, the court held that a prior inconsistent statement is sufficiently reliable for substantive admission if it is made in circumstances comparable to the giving of in-court testimony. In UFJ, the reliability requirement was met, rather, by showing that there was no real concern about whether the complainant was speaking the truth in her statement to the police. The striking similarities between her statement and the independent statement made by her father were so compelling 
that the only likely explanation was that they were both telling the truth. Again here, the criteria of necessity and reliability intersect. In the interest of seeking the truth, the very high reliability of the statement rendered its substantive admission necessary. Again here, Chief Justice Lamel added the following proviso. Quote, I would also highlight here the proviso I specified in BKG, that the trial judge must be satisfied on the balance of probabilities that the statement was not the product of coercion of any form, whether involving threats, promises, excessively leading questions by the investigator or other person in a position of authority, or other forms of investigatory misconduct, end quote. The Queen and Hawkins. This court's decision in Hawkins was concerned mainly with the issue of spousal incompetency. However, it is also instructive on the application of the principled approach to the hearsay rule. My remarks here are confined to the latter aspect of the case. It exemplifies how, in some circumstances, the reliability requirement may be established solely by the presence of adequate substitutes for the safeguards traditionally relied upon to test trial testimony. As we shall see again here, the opportunity to cross-examine the declarant was a crucial factor. Because there were sufficient indicia of reliability so as to afford the trier of fact a satisfactory basis for evaluating the truth of the statement, the court concluded that the trial judge erred in excluding the statement based on its perceived lack of probative value. Hawkins, a police officer, was charged with obstructing justice and corruptly accepting money. His then-girlfriend, G, testified at his preliminary inquiry. After testifying the first time, G brought an application to testify again and recanted much of what she had said with explanations. By the time of the trial, Hawkins and G were married and therefore G was incompetent to testify under Section 4 of the Canada Evidence Act. After ruling that the common law rule of spousal incompetency applied and that G's testimony at the preliminary inquiry could not be read in the trial under Section 715 of the Code, the trial judge held that the evidence was not admissible under the principled approach because it was not sufficiently reliable. Hawkins was acquitted. The verdict was overturned by majority decision of the Court of Appeal for Ontario. On further appeal to this court, the appeal was dismissed but for different reasons. This court refused to modify the common law rule of spousal incompetency as it was invited to do so. The court agreed with the trial judge that the common law rule applied and that testimony could not be read under Section 715. However, the majority of the court held that the preliminary inquiry testimony could be read at trial under the principled approach to the admission of hearsay. The three dissenting judges held that this violated the policy underlying Section 4 and should not be permitted. After determining that the necessity criterion was met, Chief Justice Lamel and Justice Yakabuchi, Justices Gonthier and Corey concurring, addressed reliability. In the circumstances of this case, it could hardly be said that the complainant's testimony was inherently trustworthy. She had given contradictory versions all under oath. Rather, the court looked for the presence of a satisfactory basis for evaluating the truth of the statement, stating as follows, quote, the criterion of reliability is concerned with threshold reliability, not ultimate reliability. The function of the trial judge is limited to determining whether the particular hearsay statement exhibits sufficient indicia of reliability so as to afford the trier of fact a satisfactory basis for evaluating the truth of the statement. More specifically, the judge must identify the specific hearsay dangers raised by the statement, 
and then determine whether the facts surrounding the utterance of the statement offer sufficient circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness to compensate for those dangers. The ultimate reliability of the statement and the weight to be attached to it remain determinations for the trier of fact, end quote. The court held that, generally, a witness's testimony before the preliminary inquiry will satisfy the test for threshold reliability, since the fact that it was given under oath and subject to contemporaneous cross-examination in a hearing involving the same parties and mainly the same issues will provide sufficient guarantees of its trustworthiness. In addition, the accuracy of the statement is certified by a written transcript which is signed by the judge and the party against whom the hearsay evidence is tendered has the power to call the declarant as a witness. The inability of the trier of fact to observe demeanor was found to be more than compensated by the circumstantial guarantees of trustworthiness inherent in the adversarial adjudicative process of a preliminary inquiry. The fact that the early common law was prepared to admit former testimony under certain circumstances indicated an implicit acceptance of its reliability notwithstanding the lack of the declarant's presence. Therefore, Chief Justice Lemaire and Justice Yakabuchi concluded, quote, For these reasons, we find that a witness's recorded testimony before a preliminary inquiry bears sufficient hallmarks of trustworthiness to permit the trier to make substantive use of such statements at trial. The surrounding circumstances of such testimony, particularly the presence of an oath or affirmation and the opportunity for the contemporaneous cross-examination, more than adequately compensate for the trier of facts' inability to observe the demeanor of the witness in court. The absence of the witness at trial goes to the weight of such testimony, not to its admissibility." End quote. Applying this reasoning to the statement at issue, it was found to be reliable. Chief Justice Lamel and Justice Yakabuchi added that the trial judge had erred in considering the internal contradictions contained in the testimony because these considerations properly related to the ultimate assessment of the actual probative value of the testimony a matter for the trier of fact. Although some of the analysis on this last point is couched in terms of categorizing factors as relevant to either threshold or ultimate reliability, an approach which should no longer be adopted, the court's conclusion on this point exemplifies where the line should be drawn on an inquiry into threshold reliability. When the reliability requirement is met on the basis that the trier of fact has a sufficient basis to assess the statement's truth and accuracy, there is no need to inquire further into the likely truth of the statement. That question becomes one that is entirely left to the ultimate trier of fact, and the trial judge is exceeding his or her role by inquiring into the likely truth of the statement. When reliability is dependent on the inherent trustworthiness of the statement, the trial judge must inquire into those factors tending to show that the statement is true or not. Recall UFJ. Revisiting paragraphs 215 and 217 in STAR, as I trust it has become apparent from the preceding discussion, whether certain factors will go only to ultimate reliability will depend on the context. Hence, some of the comments at paragraphs 215 and 217 in STAR should no longer be followed. Relevant factors should not be categorized in terms of threshold and ultimate reliability. Rather, the court should adopt a more functional approach as discussed above and focus on the particular dangers raised by the hearsay evidence sought to be introduced and on those attributes or circumstances relied upon by the proponents to overcome those dangers. In addition, the trial judge must remain mindful of the limited role that he or she plays in determining admissibility. It is crucial to the integrity of the fact-finding process that the question of ultimate reliability not be predetermined on the admissibility voir dire. 
I want to say a few words on one factor identified in STAR, namely the presence of corroborating or conflicting evidence, since it is that comment that appears to have raised the most controversy. I repeat it here for convenience. Quote, similarly, I would not consider the presence of corroborating or conflicting evidence. On this point, I agree with the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in the Queen and CB. End quote. I will briefly review the two cases relied upon in support of this statement. The first does not really provide assistance on this question, and the second, in my respectful view, should not be followed. In the Queen and CB, the trial judge, in convicting the accused, had used a co-accused statement as evidence in support of the complainant's testimony. The Court of Appeal held that this constituted an error. While a statement made by a co-accused was admissible for its truth against the co-accused, it remained hearsay as against the accused. The co-accused had recanted his statement at trial. His statement was not shown to be reliable so as to be admitted as an exception to the hearsay rule against the accused. Therefore, this case is of no assistance on the question of whether supporting evidence should be considered or not in determining hearsay admissibility. It simply reaffirms the well-established rule that an accused statement is only admissible against its maker, not the co-accused. Idaho and Wright is more on point. In that case, five of the nine justices of the United States Supreme Court were not persuaded that evidence corroborating the truth of a hearsay statement may properly support a finding that the statement bears particularized guarantees of trustworthiness. In the majority's view, the use of corroborating evidence for that purpose would permit admission of a presumptively unreliable statement by bootstrapping on the trustworthiness of other evidence at trial, a result we think at odds with the requirement that hearsay evidence admitted under the Confrontation Clause be so trustworthy that the cross-examination of the declarant would be of marginal utility. By way of example, the majority observed that a statement made under duress may happen to be true, but evidence tending to corroborate the truth of the statement would be no substitute for cross-examination of the declarant at trial. The majority also raised the concern, arising mostly in child sexual abuse cases, that a jury may rely on particular corroboration provided by medical evidence to mistakenly infer the trustworthiness of the entire allegation. In his dissenting opinion, Justice Kennedy, with whom the remaining three justices concurred, strongly disagreed with the position of the majority on the potential use of supporting or conflicting evidence. In my view, his reasons echo much of the criticism that has been voiced about this court's position in Star. Justice Kennedy also strongly disagreed with the majority's view that only circumstances surrounding the making of the statement should be considered. In my view, the opinion of Justice Kennedy better reflects the Canadian experience on this question. It has proven difficult, and at times counterintuitive, to limit the inquiry to the circumstances surrounding the making of the statement. This court itself has not always followed this restrictive approach. Further, I do not find the majority's concern over the bootstrapping nature of corroborating evidence convincing. On this point, I agree with Professor Pacioco, who commented on the reasoning of the majority in Idaho and Wright. Quote, the final rationale offered is that it would involve bootstrapping to admit evidence simply because it is shown by other evidence to be reliable. In fact, the bootstrapping label is usually reserved to circular arguments in which questionable piece of evidence picks itself up by its own bootstraps to fit within an exception. For example, a party claims it can rely on a hearsay statement because the statement was made under such pressure or involvement that the prospect of concoction can fairly be disregarded, but then relies on the contents of the hearsay statement to prove the existence of that pressure or involvement. 
or a party claims it can rely on the truth of the contents of a statement because it was a statement made by an opposing party litigant, but then relies on the contents of the statement to prove it was made by an opposing party litigant. Looking to other evidence to confirm the reliability of evidence, the thing Idahoan Wright purports to prevent is the very antithesis of bootstrapping, end quote. Part 7, Application to This Case. Mr. Scoopin's statement to the cook, Ms. Stangrat, to the doctor and to the police constituted hearsay. The Crown sought to introduce the statements for the truth of their contents. In the context of this trial, the evidence was very important. Indeed, the two charges against Mr. Kalawan in respect of this complainant were entirely based on the truthfulness of allegations contained in his statements. Mr. Scoopin's hearsay statements were presumptively inadmissible. None of the traditional hearsay exceptions could assist the Crown in proving its case. The evidence could only be admitted under the principled exception to the hearsay rule. Mr. Scoopin's death before the trial made it necessary for the Crown to resort to Mr. Scoopin's evidence in its hearsay form. It was conceded throughout that the necessity requirement had been met. The case therefore turned on whether the evidence was sufficiently reliable to warrant admission. Since Mr. Scoopin had died before the trial, he was no longer available to be seen, heard, and cross-examined in court. There was no opportunity for contemporaneous cross-examination. Nor had there been an opportunity for cross-examination at any other hearing. Although Mr. Scoopin was elderly and frail at the time he made the allegations, there is no evidence that the Crown attempted to preserve his evidence by application under Section 709-714 of the Code. He did not testify at the preliminary hearing. The record does not disclose if he had died by that time. In making these comments, I do not question the fact that it was necessary for the Crown to resort to Mr. Scoopin's evidence in hearsay form. Necessity is conceded. However, in an appropriate case, the court in deciding the question of necessity may well question whether the proponent of the evidence made all reasonable efforts to secure the evidence of the declarant in a manner that also preserves the rights of the other party. The issue is not raised here. The fact remains, however, that the absence of any opportunity to cross-examine Mr. Scoopin has a bearing on the question of reliability. The central concern arising from the hearsay nature of the evidence is the inability to test his allegations in the usual way. The evidence is not admissible unless there is a sufficient substitute basis for testing the evidence or the contents of the statement are sufficiently trustworthy. Obviously, there was no case to be made here on the presence of adequate substitutes for testing the evidence. This is not a Hawkins situation where the difficulties presented by the unavailability of the declarant were easily overcome by the availability of the preliminary hearing transcript where there had been an opportunity to cross-examine the complainant in a hearing that dealt with essentially the same issues. Nor is this a BKG situation where the presence of an oath and a video were coupled with the availability of the declarant at trial. There are no adequate substitutes here for testing the evidence. There is a police video, nothing more. The principled exception to the hearsay rule does not provide a vehicle for founding a conviction on the basis of a police statement, videotaped or otherwise, without more. In order to meet the reliability requirement in this case, the Crown could only rely on the inherent trustworthiness of the statement. In my respectful view, there was no case to be made on that basis either. This was not a situation in Khan where the cogency of the evidence was such that, in the words of Wigmore, it would be pedantic to insist on a test whose chief object is already secured. To the contrary, much as the case of the third statement ruled inadmissible in Smith, 
the circumstances raised a number of serious issues such that it would be impossible to say that the evidence was unlikely to change under cross-examination. Mr. Scupin was elderly and frail. His mental capacity was at issue. The medical records contained repeated diagnoses of paranoia and dementia. There was also the possibility that his injuries were caused by a fall rather than an assault. The medical records revealed a number of complaints of fatigue, weakness, and dizziness, and the examining physician, Dr. Pietrzek, testified that the injuries could have resulted from a fall. The evidence of the garbage bags filled with Mr. Scoopin's possessions provided little assistance in assessing the likely truth of his statement. He could have filled those bags himself. Ms. Stangrat's obvious motive to discredit Mr. Kalawan presented further difficulties. The initial allegations were made to her. Dr. Pietrzek acknowledged in his evidence that when he saw Mr. Scoopin, Ms. Stangrat was present and may have helped him by giving some indication of what happened. The extent to which Mr. Scoopin may have been influenced in making his statement by this disgruntled employee was a live issue. Mr. Scoopin had issues of his own with the way the retirement home was managed. This is apparent from the rambling complaints in the police video itself. The absence of an oath and the simple yes in answer to the police officer's questions as to whether he understood that it was important to tell the truth did not give much insight on whether he truly understood the consequences for Mr. Kalawan of making his statement. In these circumstances, Mr. Scoopin's unavailability for cross-examination posed significant limitations on the accused's ability to test the evidence, and in turn, on the trier of facts' ability to properly assess its worth. As indicated earlier, the crux of the trial judge's finding that the evidence was sufficiently trustworthy was based on the striking similarities between the statements of the five complainants. As Appeal Justice Rosenberg, I too would not reject the possibility that the presence of a striking similarity between the statements from different complainants could well provide sufficient cogency to warrant the admission of hearsay evidence in an appropriate case. However, the statements made by the other complainants in this case posed even greater difficulties and could not be substantively admitted to assist in assessing the reliability of Mr. Scoopin's allegations. For example, the videotaped interview with Mr. Danino, which formed the basis of the second conviction against Mr. Kellawan, was nine minutes in length. It was preceded by a 30-minute interview with the police. The police officer had no notes of the initial interview. Constable Pietranero acknowledged that it was very difficult to get Mr. Danino to answer questions and that much of the videotape is inaudible. Constable Pietranino would generally put to Mr. Danino what he thought Mr. Danino was saying, and Mr. Danino would respond with, yes, sir, yeah. Constable Petronino agreed that he was making an educated guess as to what Mr. Danino was saying and that there were some things said by Mr. Danino that he did not understand. Quite apart from these difficulties, it is also far from clear on the record on precisely what features the trial judge based his finding that there was a striking similarity between the various statements. However, I do not find it necessary to elaborate on this point. The admissibility of the other statements is no longer an issue. The Court of Appeal unanimously ruled them inadmissible. I conclude that the evidence did not meet the reliability requirement. The majority of the Court of Appeal was correct to rule it inadmissible. Part 8. Conclusion For these reasons, I would dismiss the appeal. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. 
Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.